Hello, and welcome to The Framing Effect. I am your host, Jerry Zay. This show seeks to be the incredible implications of behavioral economics and business through undiscovered lenses. The Framing Effect in the context of behavioral economics is a term describing the fluidity of information. By framing the how, when, and where information is communicated, we will see how seemingly unrelated events and people are all connected by the overarching forces of different industries. Join me in conversations with experts in fields not traditionally business-affiliated to find out how the decisions of individuals may affect the world. On our seventh episode of The Framing Effect, Jeffrey Glass, professor at Duke University's Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering, and Hogg Family Director of Engineering Management and Entrepreneurship explains his ideas on how innovation is rapidly changing not only technology, but also modern business models. Professor Glass, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, thanks. Hope you are doing well too. I'm doing well. Hope it's not too hot up in uh, North Carolina. But We've been very lucky so far, I will say. <laughs> Sounds great. Just to start, could you introduce a little bit about your career as a professor and your field, maybe some of your research and what got you into all that? Yes, happy to do that. Um, so early in my career, I was very technically focused. So I, I had uh, technology related to material science and engineering. So all my degrees are in material science and engineering. And I knew that I wanted to do some research and to um, sort of publish that work so that it could just be disseminated. But I realized after a few years that that wasn't quite enough, that I also wanted to see if some of that work could make it into products and if I could understand the business side of technology and engineering. So after a, a while, I went from a university into industry and ran a product development lab for quite a bit of time. And in that time frame, uh, felt that innovation was not really well understood by technical people in general. So we have this gap between brilliant, you know, smart scientists, researchers, engineers, and yet not able to apply it to a business effectively because they didn't understand the context. And, and innovation is all about the context of business and organizations, but with a technology focus. So after a while in industry and running a development lab, I decided that I wanted to get more involved in trying to help early stage engineers be more effective at that, at, at bringing something into the real world as opposed to just doing the lab work on it. So I actually went back to a university at that time and uh, began working on what we called uh, Masters of Engineering Management programs in a couple of places, including Duke, where I am now. And in that role, uh, began teaching innovation management to students who are early in their careers and um, that really led me to the current position where I help to guide the program um, that helps to teach that to students. And in the broader context, uh, we actually have an institute called the Institute for Enterprise Engineering, where that whole the whole goal of that institute is to help companies be better in their organizations and their processes by using better technology and understanding technology better. Um, one of the most obvious ways we're seeing that right now is clearly through uh, artificial intelligence and AI and how that's starting to impact organizations in every industry. 
so that was a very, uh, very interesting, timely uh, way for us to have an example of how organizations can use technology better. And it can be any technology. It doesn't have to be uh, IT. Uh, it can be material science. It can be um, various types of engineering and mechanical engineering or electrical engineering, um, but using it more effectively for their organizations. And that's where I am now. Um, so it's still teaching a bit, but also running this uh, institute to help companies and organizations uh, be better at uh, implementing their technical uh, skills. Now, for the field of uh, engineering enterprise, which is what your institution works with, and you say how it uh, helps companies uh, be able to leverage technology in a more business fashion, um, is that more of like a top-down kind of development where the company will sort of decide how to use new technologies, how to use it correctly? Or is it more of like training young engineers into mm -hmm. becoming better business thinkers? Yeah, good question. I would say that, uh, you know, a generation ago, you could answer that question and say it is either top down or bottoms up, so to speak, uh, depending on the organization and the industry. In today's competitive environment, we don't have that luxury. It's like saying, should I be a good leader or a good manager? You don't have that luxury anymore. You have to be good at both. And just like you have to be good at both of those, when you run an organization and you want to implement technology more effectively, you have to have good leadership. I think you have to have great leadership because if the top of the organization is not bought in, it's not gonna happen. It might happen for a short time, but it's not gonna last. And yet you also have to have the people at the ground level, the people who are working on the products and working on the organization's operations have to also be bought in. So you have to have a, a matching or a, you know, if we say in electrical engineering, an impedance match between the leadership bringing it to the attention of the organization and encouraging, motivating all the things that leaders do. And then the middle managers helping to make sure the resources are allocated correctly and the people who are receiving that message are feeling valued. And then you have to have the workers, they're right on the front lines. So you really can't implement technology in a vacuum in the sense that if one of those groups says, well, I'm just gonna do that myself, it won't work, it won't last. I shouldn't say it won't work because there are certainly pockets that can do that and when they do, sometimes then it grows. In fact, change management often is about, well, let's get this small part of the organization on it, and then it can grow from there. Or you get a small pocket of inventors, innovators, and they spin out from the larger company, and they're all on board with that. Those are ways that a large organization can foster innovation without having all of those different groups on board. But that's not a, ideal for the organization, of course. That's uh, not going to optimize the benefit for the for the main organization. Yeah, it's it's like with a large corporation. Like, could you give some examples of uh, institutions that you've worked with? Sure. Well, my my early career was with the Electronic Materials Center of a very large uh, steel company, Kobe Steel. And Kobe Steel had, uh, as it sounds, was a materials company. They weren't really a steel company only. They had materials all over. 
So they have moved into electronic materials, which was my area. Um, of course, that's very different than manufacturing steel or aluminum or copper. So there was a, a great learning curve. And in that entire learning curve and that process, they had to develop strategies for how to manage a portfolio of knowledge that they didn't have previously. So, so I'll give you a kind of an example. If you want to build a new product, let's say you're a um, let's say you're an early stage Google, and that means you're really got a bunch of computer programmers in your company, but you realize that you know there's lots of hardware that uses software that if we worked on it, we might be able to enhance the software and the hardware. Then you have to build up knowledge before you even have a product for that hardware, for example, smartphones, right? So this can open up a whole new avenue for innovation and what companies really want, money, right? Revenue, um, but you have to invest in it at first to gain the knowledge and the skills. And that investment can't be too high because if it doesn't work, that would jeopardize the company, but it can't be too low or you won't make enough progress. So I like to think of it as a portfolio, just like you might have a portfolio in your investments in a bank or in your, in, in your savings, you'll have a portfolio of investments in your technology projects. And some of those projects are just to build up knowledge. You don't think there's a product there yet, but you need to learn about it and you're going to pen you're going to spend money pay engineers and scientists to to be in the company and just learn right and that's the beginning that's the nucleus of your expanded list of products that you can offer to the public i suppose that's why uh, there's a like there's a lot of talk about how a lot of technology companies especially newly founded ones are um, not making profit their first years in development. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> they have to invest in that. That's exactly right. And and early stage investors understand that, right? If you ask an early stage investor, well, how are, why are you investing? They're not profitable yet. They're they're just spending more money than they're making. They'll say yes, but their market share is growing. Yes, but they have patents that they're developing, and those patents are competitive and are going to give them a position in the marketplace. So early stage investors understand that you're not looking at margins and profitability yet. You're looking at things like the knowledge that they've generated through patents and of course the market share. Now, of course, an early stage investor will first tell you they're looking at the people, right? Because the people in the company are the ones who are going to make all that happen. And most companies that start don't end up making money on their first idea. Even though they have a business plan for it, even though they have this great innovation pipeline they they're say they're gonna work on, somewhere along the way they learn something or the market changes, the environment changes, and they have to pivot. And if, you wanna, if you're an investor and your company has to pivot, you need to have the best people at the helm. So most investors early stage will say, are the people fantastic? That's my first question. If that's yes, then tell me about the business plan. A little bit of a side note, my my brother and I have been working on a project about like uh, stock and options prediction and creating a sort of platform where people can use it. And it's sort of like a virtual financial analyst. 
personal. Yes. Um, <laughs> Excellent. It's like you can really you can learn about the stock market. You can analyze stocks. You can create the algorithm. But it it really is about finding people who can turn it into a business venture. That's the difficult part. Right? And that's absolutely true. And and it's one thing that we should all keep in mind when we talk about innovation. And that is that business model innovation is one of the most important types. And a business model is just a fancy word for saying how you make money. And actually, it's how you make profit because you have to make revenue and you have to have your costs that are below your revenue. Anybody can sell a million products if they cut the costs enough that people will buy it because it's the lowest price thing. But are you making any money at it? That's the, th that's the question. So business model innovation means you're doing something unique and clever and that people appreciate the value of with how you actually structure that business and how you're making that money and spending the money for the cost to get the product out to the, out the door. So you, you hit on a very important topic, especially when you're talking about something as new as, uh, you know, I'm going to use the term fintech, uh, financial technology, which is, is now, you know, being looked at everywhere. When we, have, we have a new program in that that's just uh, very, very popular, very, uh, has a lot of students interested in that because you're innovating in the area of how do we handle money? How do we handle transactions? Kind of, how do you how do you have robo advising? Kind of like what you were saying. So there's an awful lot of interest in that area right now. But you need someone experienced enough to say, hey, if we structure the business this way, we can make a profit. If we structure it this way, we probably won't. Yeah, and you know, in the past six months, I guess, where you know ChatGPT has accelerated the AI boom. I'm sure there's been not just innovation with the technology, obviously, but has there been much innovation with the, like what you said, the business models that are in the market? 100%. That's a huge innovation area, right? How you actually use a chat GPT-like engine doesn't have to be chat GPT. And there's some limitations there, of course, because that's the, the one that's made for the consumer. Um, but if we, I'll, I'll give an ex a specific example. One of our directors of our of a new Master of Engineering degree that we call a Master of Engineering for Artificial Intelligence for Product Innovation. So Master of Engineering in Artificial Intelligence for Product Innovation. AI for Product Innovation means you're utilizing the AI in your product portfolio. Well, this gentleman, before he came to Duke, did that in the area of weather. His company and his, his group that he ran was all about giving weather data to all the different transportation groups in, in the country. And many of them registered and bought his data. But what he realized is that they didn't really want data. What they really wanted was a decision on their logistics. Like, do I fly a plane to this direction today? Or can I expect there's going to be a snowstorm that will need salt on this day. You know, whatever the business is, all over the country needed to know agriculture. Do I need to put my watering on or are we expecting rain tomorrow that I can hold off? All of that's about saving costs. But his company was all about changing the business model. His business model before was selling data. His business model by the time he sold the company and joined Duke was actually about helping company make decisions and telling them what kind of decisions they should make 
given the AI analysis that he did with the data that he used to just supply them. So it was all about integrating the AI in his products and services and changing the model from a data to a decision basis. Yeah, that sure is an interesting shift that it, it definitely seems like it work, you know, it's, it's like uh, data-driven analytics basically and consulting. Yeah. Yeah, and and we really don't, we shouldn't we should be careful for your listeners not to imply that data is the only place this is happening or AI is the only place this, this is happening. For example, you know the internet did this for us whatever twenty years ago, where now you can customize any digital offering for a small group of people, and you can still make money because it doesn't take any, it does no cost to deliver it to them, right? So how do you make the money? Then you just have to help them search whatever data bank you have and find the information they're looking for. Let's say it's music. All you have to do is connect them with the music and then supply it to them. And it costs you nothing basically to send that to them. Whereas before you had to have shelf space and a CD and all this kind of stuff. So it's happening everywhere. And now we're even seeing it happening. I, I wish I had a live audience. I'd ask them because I think they would know. But it's 3D printing. If anybody's been paying attention in the media, we have 3D printing now, which is changing manufacturing from a big uh, location that has all kinds of equipment and a building to your desk. Right? We can 3D print on your desk and we can make parts. We can make parts for biomedical instruments. We can make parts for electronics. We can make parts in our office or in our home. And that 3D printing, it's democratizing how we make money and it's changing the business model again. So it's not just AI and data, which is probably the most popular and the most obvious, but it's happening in hardware too. We can talk about gene editing and CRISPR, and that would be another area. So you know, anyone now who's coming up through the, uh, you know, early in their career and learning, deciding what to study in college, for example, they would really, should really study these new areas of, of gene editing and software for, with AI and algorithms and 3D printing, all these things that are changing the paradigm of how we do business and decide which one is most interesting to them before they pick their major. Uh, on the theme of 3D printing, I saw, I saw this post by Bloomberg a couple of days ago where a, a company successfully like 3D printed an entire fish. It's like in the plant, it's like plant-based meat. And that's like a whole nother uh, innovative category that's blossoming into a whole industry. That's exactly. And food, of course, food insecurity is huge. So that's, a, that's fantastic. One of our alumni 3D prints houses. His company 3D prints houses and they take the 3D printer to the house. And instead of having, you know, the normal construction techniques, it's 3D printed. I was in Amsterdam for the summer a few years ago, not maybe four years ago. They were 3D printing bridges. All the canals in Amsterdam needed bridges, of course. And they were testing how do you 3D print a bridge? And they had a 3D printer that was moving slowly across the canal, printing a bridge as it went. So it's you're right. It's just fantastic all the all the technology that's that's out there. Yeah. Um, even with the uh, there's 
business model, which is like software as a service. And mm -hmm. whereas you you start like a any kind of software company and you sell it as a subscription to like consumers. And now it's become, as you said, so much more democratized. There's no code, there's like no co code uh, programming <laughs> with Bubble. Um, you can create software programs without even learning a language. And you can- It's amazing, yes. It, it is progressing so fast and there's been concerns about maybe it's progressing too fast like yeah. elon Musk said a couple weeks ago how do you feel yeah. about the progression of innovation so i think that's always that's a great question and certainly things do seem like they're they're just happening so fast these days um on the other hand if you look over history and we think about all the things that have changed from you know uh, one example i like to use is uh, boston area used to be very well-known for ice making because outside in the winter, it's cold. And so you could just take ice off of ponds and lakes and harvest it before we had refrigeration. And so that was a huge business. Well, over the years, Boston became a leather making and shoe making hub and ice making went away. And when it happened, everybody thought the world was ending. Right. Everybody thought that livelihoods would be lost and no one would have jobs. But on the other hand, what really happened is people changed their skills and then leather making moved and nobody really makes leather in Boston area anymore. And it became what a hub for electronics and, you know, digital equipment corporation and all the companies now that then it became a hub for biotechnology. So everything changes. Everything changes. And I don't think the speed of change is what's important. It's how we prepare for it. Because the speed of change can't really be any faster than we are, right? We are still the change agents. So it's as fast as we can change, it will change. On the other hand, we do have to make sure that training and skills are kept up for the people so some people don't be left, aren't left behind, right? So it's not a speed of change to me, it's a gap between the people who are keeping up with the change and the people who are not. And as a society, we have to make the commitment that we're going to bring people along who may, maybe wouldn't normally have the resources to do that. We need to help them adapt to the change so that they can continue their livelihoods. And we, we also do need to worry about the ethics of technology. There's no question about it, right? We need, uh, as, as painful as it is, we need some policies that tell us how we are comfortable using that technology. And that has to be a good open dialogue of how we develop those, those policies. So that's hard when it's moving faster and we do have to be better at that in our systems that develop those policies. We have to make them more quickly as the speed of technology changes. But you do notice that as soon as one thing you know, happens, then that drives people to move a lot faster, right? As as soon as one, I won't say disaster, but one um, errant use of a technology, then they will end up doing the policy in retrospect. Right. And as the change does occur, we see a lot of um, maybe smaller companies integrate their own proprietary AI algorithms into whatever work they're doing, which drives yeah. up competition. How yes. We also have seen larger, uh, more established companies grow massively in wealth, such as NVIDIA, 
went, you know, yeah. the first trillion dollar chip maker or uh, something like that. But it's, you see bigger companies gaining more value and then more competition at the bottom. So how do you see that in the future of maybe the market of these companies? Well, you know, I think it's a fantastic ecosystem is what we're saying, right? You know, your your ecosystem, I should say, is is full of big companies, medium companies, and small companies. And that's a very good thing. Uh, you know, NVIDIA was once viewed by Intel as a, a, an absolute irrelevant organization, right? It was just doing niche products and it wasn't going to ever compete with an Intel. That's not true anymore because they learned how to expand their their impact and to continue to improve their quality. There's something in the innovation management arena called disruptive innovation. It's not just disruptive in the normal way we think about disruptive in the you know uh, uh, English dictionary. It's disruptive because it sneaks up on the incumbent companies that are already in the lead. They don't realize and they they do all their analysis and, and say this is not important. And then before they know it, that disruptive company is taking over. If you look at the history of almost any major um, technology or I'll say product area, let's you know, you can take um, typewriters and word processing, you can take phones to smartphones. If you look at the history of that, the company that was in the lead during one era is not the company that's in the lead you know two phases later because they couldn't make the change quickly enough and the small companies could they grew faster because they could be more flexible and more innovative and could change faster now there's still a lot of great big companies that are doing innovative stuff but there are also a lot of great big companies that are buying the innovative stuff right Let's look at the Microsoft purchase uh, that or investment, I guess I should say, was it $10 billion they invested in OpenAI so that they could use the technology that OpenAI created sort of under their nose, right? You can bet that Microsoft was still working on that at some point and had some things in the pipeline, but they saw that OpenAI had made it more, made it faster and maybe more effective. So they felt like an investment was, was worthwhile. That's not a bad thing. That's nobody should hear that and say, oh, Microsoft messed up. That's not true. Microsoft did exactly what they should do. And that is they kept their eye on the startups and the small companies and watched them grow. And when it was time, they made the purchase or investment so that they could use the technology. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a good business decision. Um, so I think that's happening everywhere. The the echo the this ecosystem between large, medium, and small companies is what makes partly what makes America great, I think, in terms of its its business innovation. Yeah. Did you see the uh, release of the recent Apple Vision Pro a couple of days ago? I I did see that. I didn't study it much, but it I the reviews were pretty good, right? They they were saying it looks good now. Isn't that, that that's something we thought may have been released like five years ago that that not necessarily by Apple, but now it seems like maybe it's time has come. Is that what you're seeing? Yes, yeah, it's, it's definitely the most like polished uh, augmented reality headset yeah. that people have been saying has ever been released. And maybe it's it is driving like the the next stage of technology for, you know, what humans are going to use. Yeah. 
very and one one really interesting thing about that maybe maybe we'll use the the artificial intelligence if you talk to people about artificial intelligence and you ask them when do you think it was you know sort of first invented often they'll say well maybe 20 years ago or 15 years ago some people will say five years ago because that's when they first heard about it well it was like in the 1950s and 1960s that artificial intelligence was first established when i was getting my phd in the was it 80s artificial intelligence was the next big thing so it takes a long time and we've seen we've seen these glasses you know these uh, virtual reality glasses for for a decade and now maybe everything converges and it's doable but we have to realize that innovation is not like oh wow that was an aha moment that's it's almost never is it this this flash of brilliance it's almost always a very slow and and considered and strong effort if you could look at it over time and over multiple organizations and people. Some person at the very end might get the, the accolades, the, the, whatever it is, get the best product because they did something at the end that really made it usable. But you have to remember there were there were hundreds and hundreds of people before them that set the stage for that. It's a it's a long and arduous process which culminates in some exciting stuff like ChatGPT, but that's absolutely not the majority of the effort that went into it. It's it's an important part, but it, the majority of the effort happened over many years. Uh, one of the key features of the headset is that when you're on a video call, per se, you can it'll like scan your face and create a model of what you look like and that way when you're wearing the headset people can still see like you but as a digitalized model of you are there any concerns that maybe this might be like over the this might be going to like the uncanny valley of like maybe we've gone too far with the the innovation because now we're not even looking at each other we're looking at a digitalized model of each other and maybe it's yeah. there's some concerns there yeah you know and if we think about scams and you know just let's take a simple scam routines where now you can do a deep fake model of someone and have them contact somebody who that person being contacted thinks it's really them that is a huge area we're going to have to worry about right but, you know, I don't, again, I don't think it's hugely, it's it's not qualitatively different than other technologies. Because if we think about the internet, well, let's, let's take, let's go back further. Let's think about electricity. What do you think happened when people said, we're going to electrify the entire globe? We're going to have every house have electricity in it. Oh, my God. You know, no one thought anyone could survive with that. Everyone was going to die because they're going to be electrocuted sooner or later by this terrible new technology that came in. The, the founders you know, of the different types of electricity um, actually had competitions and tried to show that their electricity was safer, DC versus AC, but both kill people, right? But it was all the fear of not having the structure and the, the policies that we now have to handle electricity. It wasn't fundamentally electricity, 
So I think it's the same thing with, with this headsets and with models of faces. It's going to be, there's going to have to be some sort of a, um, an environment where people can look at it and say, hey, that's got a third party validation that that's really what I'm looking at. You know, the third party that we trust has said, we checked it and here's how we checked it. We checked, you know, with whatever the physical and software version and it's okay. It's like diamonds, right? We're selling diamonds all over the world and now we can make diamonds. But there are people who make a living saying, this is a natural diamond from a mine and here's where it came from. And if you want to be sure, you buy it with our seal on it. So it's no different than the certifications we have everywhere else. We're going to have to figure that out. We don't have it yet, but it's doable. It's, it can be figured out. And, and people are talking about that a lot now. You know, how do you, how do you give it a stamp of approval when you're watching a, a video that you're not 100% sure isn't a fake? There will be some group that validates it for you, I would guess, in the future. Sounds like a great business idea, actually. Start out. It, it sure does. You you might be ten years too early, right? It's 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 as bad to be too early as too late in businesses. It is, might be too early, but maybe not. You know, it's moving so fast. Maybe not. But that you know, being the first mover is not always good in a new area that you have to educate your users a lot about. Sometimes it's better to be the second company in and learn from the first. So uh, I, I I think that's a big question still. Yeah, it certainly is a new frontier. Um, yeah, rapidly developing. What key skills, maybe in terms of management, innovation, or leadership, do you recommend new entrepreneurs, younger people who are venturing into this space? Like, what key skills should they have to be able to survive? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm going to put aside the engineering skills. I'm going to say you have to be a great engineer in terms of understanding the principles in whatever chosen field. It could be it could be mechanical, it could be computer engineering, it could be electrical. You you have to pick kind of your technology if you want to be a technical leader in addition to being a great manager and leader uh, in and of its own right. So let's put that aside. I, I think you really do have to do that, but that's your foot in the door. That's not going to get you the promotions. It doesn't matter how great an engineer you are. Once you get into the company, if you can't communicate and manage the relationships of your peers and your bosses. Uh, just yesterday, I was in a meeting. We were having this conversation and one of our faculty members said he just came from industry. And he said, you know, I spent the last half of my career. He's not that old. He's probably 40, 45 by now. He said, I spent the last half of my career in industry, 20 years or so, actually just telling engineers what they needed to know that wasn't engineering. So he ran a group of engineers, but he kept telling them, look, it doesn't matter how great your idea is. I don't really care how great your idea is if you can't communicate it and you can't persuade me that it's the best idea out there. If you can't do that, then your idea is worthless to the company, right? And I'll take that one step further that there's a whole area of emotional intelligence. And if, you're, if your listeners want, who are technically inclined want to be successful, they have to learn as much about emotional intelligence as they do about engineering. They have to learn how their ac actions impact others. They have to learn how they control their 
emotional reaction to situations and to others. They have to learn how to motivate people. They have to learn what is it that, why is it that my person on my right wants to be motivated by being told that everything that they're doing is fantastic and I love it and that makes them work harder. And the person on my left, you have to say, that's not very good. You can do better. You know, why is that? Well, that's emotional intelligence, knowing the difference and knowing the different people. There are books out there on emotional intelligence that I think give you a, a great view of that. So I'll say in addition to your engineering, you need emotional intelligence, which is all about leadership and how to relate to people. And the one other thing you need is the organizational project management skills that allow you to handle many, many tasks, because that's what we expect of our people these days. I work with some people who they were born organized. You know, I'm pretty sure that that when they were six months old, they were lining up their their diapers and their whatever the, the things are that you put in your mouth and your bottles. And they were lining them up in their crib and, and making sure they were all neat and, and tidy because they are just organized from their DNA. And I think that those people have an immediate advantage over those of us who can be organized, but it takes effort. So make sure that in addition to your engineering and your emotional intelligence, you're learning about organization and multitasking, because that's going to be expected on any, any job these days. Do you ever see a, maybe a correlation between engineers who might be like more scared to enter business because they've been trained to be like methodical, mathematical, yeah. And then with business, there's a lot of risk taking and yeah. you ever see that kind of pose like a challenge? Yes, absolutely. What I like to tell people, uh, the, the master's degrees that I'm in charge of, that you talked about earlier, I, that one of the most important things we teach is how to make decisions based on insufficient data and information. So as an engineer, you want all the data, you can do the calculations, you can do the analysis, and you can come up with an answer. As an engineer in a real company, you're not gonna have enough data, you're not gonna have enough information, and you still have to make the decision and come up with the answer. So yes, it's very scary for engineers. What we see is that traditional engineers who really want to work in a world that's more defined, will tend to stay in a more limited role, hands-on perhaps, um, doing experiments that are, are very valuable and maybe services that help the organization, but then are assimilated by others. You know, they aren't really put into the, the products and the services of companies by the engineer when, they, when an engineer has that perspective. They're put in by a broader team. And there's nothing wrong with that. Right, uh, an engineer who is, um, you know, very comfortable with the mathematics and with the analysis, but not very comfortable with the human side and the relationship side. I would say that it will it will put you in a more of a box than if you can do both. Right, but I I have turned down a number of different jobs because I felt like, well, that's not a good fit for me. And if you look at those jobs, people would say, you turned that down. You know, that's a promotion. I'd say it doesn't matter if it's a promotion if I'm not happy. So you have to know yourself and you have to say, will I be happy doing this? 
Now, you still need to stretch sometimes. You have to say, okay, I'm going to do this particular task, even though I'm not going to be great and not going to be super happy about it. You might have to still do them for your job, but just make sure that most of your job is the kind of stuff that you naturally are, are more excited by, passionate about, and happy doing. And for a final question, with all the projects and initiatives that you've worked with, what excites you the most? Like what individual uh, project? That's a, that's a tough one. I sometimes tell people that my problem is I love too much of my job and too many different things. If you oh, just love is. one particular thing, it's easier to make decisions. Um, well, I'm a material scientist by training, right? So my, my education is in material science and my lab works on making better devices by, by using better materials. And when I say devices, I mean electronic devices. So one thing that really excites me and we're working on right now is using nanomaterials in ways to improve energy storage that haven't been done before. And, and, as, and understanding why that material and that structure are actually better than other materials and other structures. So it's not just doing it, it's understanding it. I really like to understand and, and dig deep down into what's causing it. So that's on my research side, but I'll add one other thing on my management side. What I'm most excited about right now is what we've alluded to throughout this, this discussion is the automation of many different business processes that in the past we would have to do manually. And nobody likes to do them. They're very uh, boring parts of our jobs, but we do them. We're working with spreadsheets and working with, you know, doing paperwork and bureaucracy that now can be automated because our computer systems are smart, because they can now dig deep into our data and dig deep into all the information they have access to and do much more than they used to. They still need our guidance. They still need our judgment. They still need us to watch out for those times where they are going off the rails, as we say. But that's an exciting area. And we're, we're exploring that now in the groups that I work in. So that's my, that's my second thing that I'm, I'm most excited about at the moment. That sounds like a great venture to be in. Oh, yeah, I feel very lucky. You, you got to love your job. And uh, I feel lucky that I do. That's great advice for everyone who's listening. Uh, thank you so much for joining the Frame Effect for this conversation. Um, we, I loved hearing all of your stories about all of the stuff that you've done and the talk about AI and the future of innovation. So thanks again for sitting down today and sharing all of your wisdom. My pleasure. It's been a pleasure chatting. I loved your questions and I hope your audience uh, gains something from it and has fun with innovation in the future. Thank you so much for listening. And special thanks again to Professor Glass for sitting down for this conversation. If you have feedback or questions regarding this podcast, please contact framingeffectpc at gmail.com. Please look forward to clips of this episode on our Instagram. Stay curious.